This week on New Mexico in Focus, a final look at the legislative session, including a rundown of important environmental bills. And I think part of what we have to understand is that climate change is not something that can be dealt with soon. It is something that has to be dealt with now. Plus, the state of theater and local acting as we tentatively poke our heads out of the pandemic. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Last week marked the last day the governor had to sign bills from the legislative session. We'll take a look at her final strokes of the pen, as well as rounding up environmental measures and looking ahead, yes, already to next year. We'll dip our toe into the special election for the 1st Congressional District, one of the races that's being watched closely from Washington, D.C. We begin, though, with a return to school that's also seen the return of COVID-19. Here's the line. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Today is Friday, April 16th, 2021. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico in Focus. And just a ton of stuff in a very busy week to bring to you this week. You just heard a little bit of it, but we want to start off as usual with our line panel for this week. And we have a great one for you. Some names you will no doubt remember, starting with regulars, Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group and Laura Sanchez. Uh, also with us this week, always love having her on the show, Kathy McGill. Uh, and uh, we've got a lot of great topics to dive into and a little bit heavy with line stuff here at the beginning. So bear down. But a lot of great conversation. We're going to start off with a conversation that is going on in many households uh, this week, especially those with the kiddos who are just newly back in the classroom uh, after the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, earlier this month, in-school, uh, in-person uh, learning began again. And not surprising anyone, there have been uh, a ton of cases, not a ton, but there have been cases across the state of um, COVID cases which have uh, shut down schools, like we've seen at El Dorado High School here in Albuquerque, uh, or just left classes or large swaths of students back in a virtual mode at home out of an abundance of caution about the spread of COVID-19. You may have seen in the news where there were several hundred students in Las Cruces School District that won't be allowed back in for a little bit here because of a secret prom they held and school officials doing what they think is a responsible thing to do to hold them out to avoid a super spreader situation. Again, it is something that uh, as we heard, a lot of school officials even say is inevitable. It uh, doesn't mean that it's the wrong choice, but it just means that it's something that schools are having to navigate. And so we wanted to get the line opinion panelists' thoughts on all of that. So here now, let's kick it over to host Gene Grant and the line opinion panel. Well, who could have seen this coming? As Albuquerque closed El Dorado High School following a series of rapid response visits for COVID-19 positive tests, APS spokeswoman Monica Armenta said what apparently many people are thinking, we expected this. School's been in session in person for less than two weeks, but already schools are shifting to remote learning as cases pop up. Is it a back-to-school blunder or an expected problem to be managed? The Line Opinion panel has a few ideas. Joining us at our virtual roundtable is a welcome guest, founder and director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council, Catherine McGill. 
Attorney in line regular Laura Sanchez is back after a busy legislative session. And another line regular, principal of the Garrity Group, Tom Garrity, is with us as well. Now, APS said there's no way to avoid COVID cases in a return to school. Indeed, schools from Socorro to Rio Rancho have, and beyond, certainly, have been forced to ease off in-person learning. Tom, does this feel like at all surprising? Or like I mentioned earlier, was this to be expected? Well, you know, this is uh, the first time that any school district in New Mexico has really kind of ramped up in the middle of April. Uh, so, you know, I think to some degree, I'm, I'm willing to cut them a lot of slack. And I think that, you know, there was going to be some expectation that just as we saw some counties slip from uh, green to yellow, uh, as far as the, the, the county rankings, that there wasn't going to be a perfect science, that just because schools open up that, you know, nobody's going to, you know, uh, catch COVID uh, or test positive for it. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's to be expected. Uh, from what I've seen, uh, you know, it's been very sporadic as far as just around the state. There's not like really one concentration in any one school district or area of the of New Mexico. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think they're doing the best job that they can. And I'm not all that surprised that, you know, just as they ramp up, um, you know, some schools, uh, just because of things out of their control, uh, had to go back uh, to remote learning. Mm -hmm. Good point there. Catherine, you know, we got to say this. There are equity questions that must be raised because we know COVID-19 has hit low income and minority communities much harder. Is it bound to hit schools in those communities the same way? Should we just like deal with that at a fundamental level? Well, I think we needed to deal with it prior to COVID and we definitely need to deal with it now as uh, some of those disparities and inequities are exacerbated by the pandemic. And, you know, like Tom said, you know, I have to give a lot of grace to uh, the individuals who are doing, I hope, the best they can, but it's a really tough situation. Kids do need consistency, especially those who are behind in learning. And, and so I, I say, for me, like what I keep saying is how can we be supportive? How can we make sure that we're doing everything we can to uh, ensure that our children are successful? And also hoping that we will uh, have some good information and transparency. So when things happen, let's figure out how we correct immediately and have some on the spot recovery with the kids at the center. Yeah. Kathy, you know, do you feel like they had a plan going in that, you know, they're executing on now? Do, do you feel like they have the, a handle on it? Well, you know, as they say in the head, like we we were hearing that that the schools were not going to be back in session. So we got used to that. Right. And then wait what and you know uh, they were going to go back to session and it happened really quickly and so i think they they i'm hoping did the best that they could but i didn't really see a great tactical plan teachers not all immunized before they went back i think they're up to 70 percent now but perhaps that could have happened before it did not so what do we do now point there hey laura you know i have to say personally i was in favor of kids getting back in the classroom after I was opposed to them getting in the classroom because it's clear most students benefit, you know, not just from in-person learning, we know that, but in-person social development. But is there a point where we say, okay, we're just not ready to battle this disease in schools. This is the wrong place to have this uh, sort of experiment kind of play out. And as Kathy mentions, if, it would be different if all the teachers were vaccinated beforehand. So I'm, I'm curious your thought on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I just sort of on a personal level, I'm on a, a board right now. I'm on the governing council of the South Valley Academy, which is a charter school 
um, in the South Valley and, uh, you know, a uh, you know, high proportion of um, Hispanic students, um, there's a lot of income disparity in the South Valley. And so we have some very vulnerable populations that are part of our school. And there was a lot of anxiety about going back and um, the board meetings that we had where we had we had a lot of teachers expressing their frustration about this decision. Of course, it wasn't uh, the, the school board's decisions to do this, it was the state's. And so there was a lot of um, just frustration among them. Um, many of them felt that it was it was too soon to go back and especially at the very end of, uh, of a school year uh, with so little time left in this school year and they felt that it would have been better to go back um, and plan during the summer go back uh, in the fall but um, that being said you know I, I really have to give props to the schools um, to the teachers faculty and parents also to have faith in the system and send their their students back because they're not able many of those students unless they're you know over 16 they're not able to get uh, vaccinated and, and a lot of teachers still Many of them have been vaccinated, but some of them have not. And so it's, it's just a very frustrating time right now. A lot of anxiety for folks, but I think that, um, you know, hopefully there is an opportunity for our administration, um, for the states, uh, the governor and, and other leaders to um, take into account what uh, teachers are saying and what parents are saying about their uh, interactions right now as we try this sort of experiment. Um, and I think it's good that we see situations like El Dorado where they're essentially deciding not to, you know, to shut it down after they see some evidence of cases. I think that's the right thing to do. And it's something we should all be prepared to do as we see, if we see some outbreaks in other schools. Tom, we got to get parents in here, certainly and the impact on them, you know, look at only a couple of weeks into not having, you know, kids at home, it's got to be a blow to productivity. You think about if you're working from home, there's, there's a lot of things to kind of figure out getting your kids back into school for five weeks and they're back in home after that or just two weeks in some cases. It's easy to look back, but again, I have to ask, from a parent's point of view, was this the right way to go? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a, a lot of family units, uh, different types of family units that uh, rely, that, that, you know, parents are, you know, really good parents. They're really good, uh, you know, friends to their kids and, you know, running a household. Uh, being an employee and adding in being a teacher or overseeing that teaching process at home places a lot of stress on parents because, you know, they now they have to do one more thing. So I think that even though it's a month or two weeks, whatever that span is, I think that it provides that reprieve for, you know, the family units, for the, for the folks who have been basically taking on all those different roles to basically get a breather and go, okay, now it's, let's get back to normal at least for a few weeks you know, collect our thoughts and then, you know, hit the summer uh, and hopefully regain some normalcy. What I also think that this time period has shown us is that just as there are teachers who um, are really good face-to-face uh, -face instructors with the classroom, there are some teachers who are much better on Zoom or on a virtual uh, nature and a lot of students that way as well. So maybe one of the things that will happen in the off season or during the summer is a chance for um, you know, schools to really kind of pair up the teachers who are good in a virtual setting and get those uh, teachers paired up with students who are, who are really good in a virtual setting. Because the hybrid nature right now of what we're seeing is really, uh, is, it's a challenge for students who, who uh, for one reason or another, have to attend class virtually. Mm -hmm. I could imagine that. Well, we're out of time. We'll have to take a quick break, then get political in the first congressional district race when we come back.
Well, it seems like we just finished, but we are once again back in an election cycle. As you probably know, there is a special election set for June 1st. This is to replace Deb Holland in the 1st Congressional District here in the center part of the state. Uh, We now know who's running for that, and uh, we wanted to um, stick with the line panel here for a bit and talk a little bit about the candidates that made it on to the ballot and the ads we've already started to see air and just how they think this election is going to play out here in less than two months. Um, Again, on the Democratic side, we have Melanie Stansberry, a state lawmaker, and the Republicans, Mark Moores, also a state lawmaker. And then we have a Libertarian candidate, Chris Manning, uh, as well as a write-in candidate, uh, several write-in candidates, actually. And we want to take a moment to, to make you aware of something. Kathy McGill, who's on the line panel, she's also involved in the New Mexico Black Voters Collaborative, And they are hosting a virtual candidate forum next Tuesday from 6 to 7.30 p.m. with most of the candidates there. We learned here in this conversation that Mark Moores had agreed to participate and then rescinded that. So he will not be part of it, but the rest of the candidates should be there and part of that discussion. So we encourage you to... um, to watch that, and you, there's a Facebook event if you search for New Mexico Black Voters Collaborative, uh, and uh, and there is an event there that you can sign up so you can watch that. Again, that's next Tuesday from 6 to 7.30 p.m., but let's hear more from Kathy and the rest of the line group about the CD1 race. The race is on. Voters in New Mexico's first congressional district will decide on June 1st. Who should replace Deb Holland, the former congresswoman, who is now the Secretary of the Interior, as you know. The seat hasn't been held by a Republican in a decade and a half since Heather Wilson left. The GOP thinks it has their man in Mark Morris, a longtime state senator and a former staffer for Lieutenant Governor Walter Bradley, you might recall. Democrats picked Melanie Stansbury in a runoff election. The state representative and former Washington, D.C. committee staffer nosed out state senator Antoinette Cedillo Lopez. Other notable names are independent and former land commissioner Aubrey Dunn and libertarian Chris Manning. We're always in favor of more voices, but Laura, you have to thank Mr. Manning, and especially Mr. Dunn, are no help to Mr. Morris uh, especially. So how do you see the field shaping up with those other names uh, in there? Well, you know, it's an interesting race. Uh, Mm -hmm. Aubrey Dunn has um, run a few times um, as a, a, not as a Republican, as a, I guess, libertarian. and but he's got strong um, Republican support, I think, in some parts of the state. So it definitely is no help to um, Senator Moore's. Uh, but I think that you know the district has definitely been trending over the last since Heather Wilson, um, Democrat. So I think the Democrat has the edge. But of course, this is an unusual year, as always. You know, we have a, a lot of interesting things happening, and it's a very short run in terms of. Um, the the campaign time so uh we're talking about you know two months a little over two months um as opposed to all the months that we have usually leading into a cycle like this so um i expect and i'm not surprised that we're already seeing a lot of ads out there um not surprised that they're already negative um it's disappointing because you i mean i think traditionally you see folks introduce themselves first before they go negative but i think in this case 
given the short timeline, we're already seeing um, the negative ads out there. But uh, also some fact checking is necessary because there's there's some allegations about uh, from Mr. Moore's campaign about um, Melanie Stansberry's uh, uh, alleged lack of support for seniors and Social Security um, that they are pushing back on for sure. So um, anyway, I think it's going to end up being, um, as always in New Mexico, it, it's an interesting um, campaign, but I think it will uh, it will definitely be difficult for Mr. Moore's given Aubrey Dunn and others in the race. Mm -hmm. Tom, I'm interested in your opinion on that as well. Uh, Mr. Moore's is certainly got name recognition. He's known quite well within the party. He's on the conservative end of it. Certainly would that just bode well for him in this, in this go round? Well, it, you know, it's all about the base and right. uh, you know, it's uh, one thing that the Republicans have had a hard time, especially in the first congressional district, as far as getting uh, that vote out, it doesn't help that Aubrey Dunn is in there, uh, as well as uh, a couple of other, uh, you know, folks who, you know, basically, you know, will help to, you know, split that vote, including some libertarians, even though some of the, uh, some of the early, uh, you know, ads that I've seen with Chris Manning, who's a libertarian, um, has really been focusing more on pulling that Democratic vote. Uh, you know, there's the Democrats, I think, are really solidified with Melanie Stansberry, and it's basically her election right now to lose. Interesting point there. Kathy, I want to go back to how uh, Ms. Stansbury got the seat in the first place. Uh, Russ Contreras pointed out that Ms. Holland's election was a big deal for the Native American community, uh, certainly, and Georgine Louise didn't poll well among the Central Committee, which selected the candidates. And though Antoinette Cedillo Lopez won the first round, she lost the runoff. You know, it, representation's a very tricky word right now for this cycle. Uh, it, I get, I, I'm interested in your sense of how this went and how representation kind of came out the other end of the process. Well, I mean, I, I'm harkening back to the fact that I wish we could have had a primary um, so that, that we would have an opportunity, all of the voters, to weigh in on who the final candidate was. Uh, their process was certainly contentious and people were saying that we need somebody who's really going to represent the district and we need to follow uh, that trend of having a person of color in the seat to take over after Deb Holland. Um, I, I guess I would say that, that what I'm looking for is the person uh, who goes beyond that diversity, equity, and inclusion to humanism so that my interests are represented whether I'm in the room or not. And uh, what we want to know is uh, what are the policies, uh, what are the, the positions of the person that's going to be a representative, and are they going to be a representative for everyone, which is why um, one of the organizations that I work with is doing a candidate forum. Even though we don't have a whole lot of time, we want to hear from the candidates, not have them take that you know, uh, vote for granted. We want to hear from them to say, what are you going to do? Uh, we invited everyone. Um, everyone said that they would be there. Actually, uh, Mr. Morris uh, said that he would be there. Um, they um, accepted and then withdrew. So we won't get to hear from them about those positions, but we're very interested to know uh, what are you going to do? And the color of your skin, uh, while important, not the most important thing to me. Mm. Can I circle back on the word you used, humanism? I, I like the way you use that in, in a sense. I want to. Could you kind of expand on that a little bit? What are you looking for that that sort of expresses that idea of humanism from a candidate? 
I would say that that I don't have to educate you about the right thing to do and the thing that's, that should be done for the public good uh, that includes everyone. And it's 2021, it's really time out for us to have to educate people about how to do the right thing in the right way at the right time. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Hey, Laura, I got a question. Uh, let's talk about Ms. Stansbury. Look, she was born and raised in Albuquerque. But she's not the known quantity that Deb Holland was, certainly, who, let's not forget, was a lieutenant governor candidate and a Democratic Party chair, as you know. Um, but I'm back in this idea of where Central Committee was coming from, quote unquote. You know, you got Annette Cedillo Lopez, and then suddenly she just dropped way down here in the, in the runoff. It just, for a lot of folks, it seems like, well, there was not a, a thread. There was, it, folks couldn't make sense of it when it was all, all said and done. What won it for Ms. Stansbury in your view with Central Committee? Well, you know, <laughs> Central Committee is definitely the ultimate insider baseball. It is. Um, <laughs> that, that entire process, and I'm quite familiar with it, mm -hmm. um, for better or worse. But um, it definitely is um, a lot of very you know, staunch Democrats, people who are activists in terms of the party. Um, and I really think that um, Melanie Stansbury has a lot of energy. She's a very... She's young, um, she's energetic, um, she's articulate, and I think people saw in her um, somebody that they wanted to, to see representing them in, in Washington. And she was a committee staffer, she um, has a, a good background in natural resources, which we have um, a lot of here in New Mexico, and we definitely want to have a voice that understands um, the need to protect our natural resources here in New Mexico. Um, and then her time at the legislature has been, while brief, I think it's been impactful. I mean, she has definitely had um, some, some good uh, bills that she represented or that she sponsored. Um, for example, she was um, in my line of work, I work obviously in, in the utility sector, but she worked on a grid mod bill, uh, grid modernization, which is really big in terms of making sure that New Mexico, you know, goes into the future in terms of its grid reliability, its resilience, um, make sure that we have the right technology to be able to use smart meters and um, integrate into the future in terms of renewable energy. And that's something that she had spearheaded. And so I think that the, the Democratic Party um, was looking for that energy. And that's probably what it came down to um, when uh, when all was said and done. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to predict when you have so many candidates. And you had, um, for those of you who watched the, uh, the legislative session, and this time it was all virtual, so it was very interesting to see um, folks like Antoinette Cedillo-Lopez, when she would chair um, a committee, she was vice chair, but sometimes she would chair the Senate um, Conservation Committee. And then Melanie, who was a vice chair also, um, she would chair sometimes. And then you had Georgine Lewis, who was also chair of a committee. And they just have such different styles um, that uh, I think that really translated well for Melanie. Um, and she ended up, uh, I'm not entirely surprised that she took it. I think she was a very, um, a very articulate, uh, very energetic person. Sure. Uh, Laura, just real quick in 10 seconds, again, this process question, Kathy made a good point. The voters did not have a chance to get their cut or their say in a primary. Is this the fair way to go to pick a something so important? You know, it is, it is such insider baseball. It's very, and the thing is that both parties have this process and it's in state law. So it's not like uh, something that's been baked for a long time. This wasn't something that the party created. Um, all of us would probably prefer to have more of a say. Um, the outcome might have been very different, but it also would have meant a lot more money raised and spent um, and a longer process. So I think it sort of can cut both ways. And um, 
you know, until the legislature decides to change the state laws so that, uh, you know, the, the voters have more of a say, you know, they will have a say in the, the election coming up, but uh, in terms of who the candidate was for each party, not so much. So. Yeah, there you go. We'll have to leave that there. We have one more legislative turn with the line. Just ahead, we're focusing on in-person theater experiences. We have spent a lot of time over the last year looking at the ripple effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. It has touched all facets of our lives. We've also heard tons uh, everywhere you turn about the impact on the economy. And uh, one area we've spent a lot of time talking about is the arts uh, community. We've talked to artists, musicians, folks uh, who are really struggling in the time of a lack of events to keep their ships afloat. And one area we hadn't talked about yet were local theaters. Albuquerque, especially has a very vibrant local theater community. And that's just not something that's in the cards right now. But luckily, a lot of these theater groups have come up with creative ways to keep the creative juices flowing and the lights on uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we wanted to find out a little bit more about that. And we're thrilled to bring you this interview. Also thrilled because uh, the host, the moderator you're going to hear is Bryce Dix, who is a fellow of ours that we've had pretty much almost all of the pandemic. He has helped with the Growing Forward Cannabis podcast that we've talked a lot about. Hopefully you've had a chance to check out. But he also um, brought this story to us and uh, is conducting this interview. And our time with Bryce is short now, but we've loved having him. And uh, we hope you enjoy and appreciate his interview here now. Theatrical performances have been at a standstill in New Mexico for months as public health orders have forced venues like the Albuquerque Little Theater and Pope Joy to halt in-person live performances. We might be seeing a glimmer of light that can be seen at the end of the tunnel, but these prolonged closures have theatrical management and local actors worried about what lies ahead for the industry. NMIA fellow Bryce Dick sat down with Little Theater Executive Director Henry Avery and actor Hazani Olajimi to talk about these concerns and what is being done to keep theater alive in the meantime. Henry and Hassani, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Henry, the Albuquerque Little Theater hasn't had a live show since last March, which is a long right. time. Can you right. give us a little rundown of how the absence of these live performances has affected your theater's income and its staff? Well, uh, we're proud to say that over 85% of our um, operational uh, income is from our productions. Um, so we have not had a, any income from the productions for a year. Uh, so that's had a huge impact. But um, fortunately, we've got some of the PPP money. Uh, we've had a little bit of savings. We've done some benefits that have been very uh, lucrative uh, online shows. Um, we've been producing online. Uh, which haven't been a huge source of income, but it's keeping our name out there. But primarily, we've had some incredible support from the community, from our patrons, our followers, people that want to keep this 91-year-old theater alive. So we're very grateful for the support of the community. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned um, that you guys are doing virtual performances, and I, and, yes. I can, and I can assume that's probably not getting the bills paid as much as you would hope so. Uh, and I know you guys are asking for donations as well, but other than that, what are some alternatives that theater is, has been exploring to help pay some of the bills? Is there anything else? 
Well, as I said, we did a, two benefits, two online uh, showstopper shows where we did quite well. Um, they were free shows, but they were uh, we were asking for uh, donations and support. Um, we got it from all over the country. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did an interview um, for one of the stations here that went all over the country. We were getting donations from, you know, people in, in New York and Texas and, you know, all over. So it was really kind of exciting that, that people do appreciate what this theater has achieved in 91 years uh, and are really determined that we're going to stay afloat. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's important for our viewers just to point out that the Albuquerque Little Theater is largely community based, which means the majority of actors are mainly volunteers, right? And they're not paid. And there's a very small staff of paid professionals, right? Yeah. Um, well, all of, all of the performers are, are volunteer their time. Just a, a small portion of the staff and the design teams and the people like that uh, get a small stipend, but the performers are all volunteer. And you mentioned you had some luck with some donations coming in. How successful has that been? Is it pretty quite pretty- successful? Yeah, I mean, as I said, people are very happy to uh, to you know keep us afloat so that we can be here when the pandemic is over and we can get back to doing what we do well, uh, which is the live performances. Uh, so we've we've been very creative. That's what we are. We're creative people in theater, and so we've found the ways um, with the support of the community. Uh, and the PPP money that we were able to get to. So we're still here. We're ready to go and we're allowed to reopen. Great. And Hassani, as an actor yourself, the Albuquerque Little Theater struggled to keep the lights on. Must be a little alarming to you, to say the least. Um, how would the potential closure of any theater in Albuquerque be a hard hit for the acting community here like you? Like you? Oh, it would be very devastating. Very devastating. Um, I kind of sat up in bed the other night thinking about this as we were talking about it. And um, I'm grateful for the government support, but um, icons like Albuquerque Little Theater and other theaters here in, in this town, it would be very detrimental for us as actors to see them close because we are we are family. We might pull each other's hair out and roll our eyes, but at the end of the day, it's about the joy of getting the work done and presenting a show that takes the audience on a journey outside of their ordinary day lives. And for us to not be able to tell that story and to see one of our icons such as ALT close, oh my gosh, that would be disappointing. I will have to learn to knit sweaters and sell them on the street before ALT closes down. All right. And, and Henry, have you heard anything else from other community-based theaters here in Albuquerque or other people struggling and organizations struggling? Everybody's struggling. Uh, some of them, unfortunately, have had to close altogether. They've announced that they will not reopen after the pandemic, which we really hate um, because as, as Hassani says, we're a big family and everybody works at all the different theaters. So we're very closely related. Um, so we would, uh, we're really sad to, to see some of them go by the wayside. Um, others are still struggling. Some of them are on a hiatus uh, until they can reopen. Um, we have probably the larger staff since we're the, the largest theater, a 500 seat theater. Um, so we've had to lay off staff. We've had to cut back on salaries, but we've kept as many people together as we can. And the PPP money has helped us you know, keep our staff. But that, to, to try to reassemble a, a whole team like we have um, if we have to lay everybody off and let everybody go their own ways, that would be really harmful to the future of the theater. 
So, uh, and this could be a question for both of you, but I want to start with you, Henry. Do you think the concern is more around the here and now economics of these closures, or do you think this is more of a long-term problem that might affect the, the theater community post-pandemic? Well, we know that it's never going to be the same again. I mean, we're going to have to develop some sort of hybrid um, combination of the either of the of the uh, the future. We hope to get back to live performances, but even when we do, we know that we'll probably have limited audience. Um, we're we're very concerned for our our performers. So, being able to do a big cast show with lots of uh, crew and cast and singing and dancing, we probably will not be able to do that immediately, uh, just for safety reasons, for the um, you know, protection of our volunteers. Um, so we're, we're looking at whatever it's gonna be, we will do it and we'll do it to the best of our ability, but we're all realistic and know that it's probably not gonna be the same, not right away. It may evolve back to um, you know, where we are now, or we, well, where we were, but it's a good thing. I mean, you know, life shouldn't be stagnant. It shouldn't change. So we're excited. The fact that there may be some new possibilities and some things that we've gotten rather complacent about and, and, uh, we'll rethink them and we will grow from them and we will make it even better. And, and what about you, Hassani? What do you, what do you think of, think of that? Um, I'm with Henry. We are probably going to have to start at a limited uh, requirement and then less distance, less distance, less distance. Um, yeah, I, I miss everyone, but this is going to be something that we're all going to have to be creative about as well and make it happen. But how small or big the uh, uh, the cast is, sign me up, you know. <laughs> and, and Hassani, you told me before this that if someone wants to pursue a career in acting, they have to go to other places to do so to make make money to support themselves. Why is that? What, what's your experience with that? Oh, well, here we do a lot of community theater, but um, if you want to hit Broadway or other major uh, outlets, you would have to probably go further out and seek that opportunity. But one thing I love about community theater is, as I say, it saved my life. A lot of, a Broadway has said this morning on MSNBC that it's the small local theater, community theaters that is the catalyst that helps the broader span even to Broadway and theater. It's community theater that makes this happen. And so they need us and we need them. And uh, Henry, so if there's not many opportunities for actors to seek employment for acting here, um, what can be done to keep our talent here and retain our talent here? Well, I mean, a lot of the talent, you know, uh, does get trained here and then moves on. I mean, that's what we serve that purpose to giving them uh, opportunity and training. Um, we have the opportunity to work with professionals in, uh, you know, as directors and choreographers and musical directors. So the, the local people get a lot of training before they would go off to pursue, you know, um, advanced careers in theater or education. Um, but we are, we're proud to say that we can make a living in Albuquerque in the arts um, for some of the uh, directors and choreographers and, and teachers and people that are in the design field. Um, we're able to actually pay them money in Albuquerque, and that's really great. I mean, I wish that there was a situation where we could include the actors in that, 
but the whole premise of community theater is based on the volunteer um, performers. Um, and that's part of our charter. But the, um, the fact that we can have other people that are working in the community uh, to help these people and to train them and make a living, that's very exciting to be able to say that. Well, and of course, Albuquerque has a large, large community theater base. I, I think it's around 50 community theaters are located around the Albuquerque area. So that's very significant. Mm. Um, I've always heard that we had more theater, more community theater per capita than any other um, city in the country. We are very fortunate to have a lot of interested people and, and a lot of talent here to play with. Mm -hmm. And we just have uh, around 30 seconds left. Uh, Henry, just to send us off, send us off. Can you tell us the best way to support our local theaters and venues here until live performances come up again? Well, you know, we're trying to do the online presentation. I know people are tired of sitting in front of a computer and looking at the screen all day because we've been forced to do that. Um, and, and maybe they're just not quite as interested in watching it, you know, a, a show, a play. But that's how you can keep them going: is watch these shows, support the theaters, be aware of what they're doing. Uh, and making the contributions, um, you know, to the theater. And, and people have been very, as I said, very generous. I cannot complain about the community. We can always, you know, grow and use more. Um, but to this date, they've kept us going a year into this. And we probably have another, you know, nine months probably before we're able to really start getting back to earning money. So we will continue to need their uh, support and their blessings. And we really appreciate it. Well, Henry and Hassani, thank you so much for talking to us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. And Bryce and our guests had a little bit of extra time to talk uh, more about this. And we want to bring that to you here in the podcast, starting off with a little bit of a discussion about what these theater go, these theater workers, actors, um, folks involved in the local theater scene, what they've missed the most about the local theater scene over the last year, what they'll be looking forward to um, coming up and what sort of changes and adjustments and evolutions and innovation from the pandemic they think will stick in terms of local theater into the future. So here now a little more of that conversation and our correspondent and fellow Bryce Dix. Henry, you mentioned uh something about an opportunity to re-envision theater because of the pandemic. Do you have any ideas of what that could look like at your theater? Well, we've had to go to the online presentation. Um, and of course, when you get rights to the amateur rights to do any of these shows, they're pretty restrictive. And we've only been able to get them to do them for a limited time on stage you know, and, and that was that was the contract. But uh, so many of the uh, licensing companies in New York are having to, you know, be creative as well. So a lot of the shows that were totally restricted from being uh, broadcast are now loosening up, and we're we're getting uh, more opportunities to be able to get good material to do it online. So I think that it may be a hybrid. We don't know. I mean, we're we're just trying to stay open so that we can figure out what it is. But, um, you know, we're, we've talked about even putting screens out of the parking lot, doing things, you know, um, where we can project them to the, almost like a drive-in movie or something, you know. Um, but we may end up doing shows that will be streamed, like the production of Gin Game that we did, to, um, that we're presenting opening tonight. Um, that had to be done, filmed at a production. 
it uh, it could not be filmed in pieces and, and then edited together for the broadcast. So, you know, we had to build a set. We had to rehearse the show. We had to do the whole thing and then film it uh, like it was a live uh, performance that could be aired. Um, so that's something that if we're, if that's the format that we're going to be following, I mean, we'll be doing shows that can, you know, have a, a live audience or limited audience maybe, but at least some live audience as well as being able to still be broadcast um, to the people that can't make it. And this way, you know, a lot of the families and people that, that volunteers to do the shows, if they don't live in Albuquerque, they don't get to see anything. Uh, something like this gives an opportunity for them to be able to see their their loved ones, you know, from, from miles away. So, you know, it could be a whole new ball game. Uh, we don't know. Um, and, 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 and of course, you know, theater is really meant to be viewed in person too, right? What would you say to the people yeah. who are theater snobs who absolutely have to see theater acting in person? What would you say to those people if you were to introduce a model like that? You might get some pushback. Well, I mean, they could certainly come to the theater because we'll be doing live performances. But um, if we can't, you know, uh, play to the full capacity of the theater, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that are used to coming because so many of our shows, you know, would sell out at 500 seats. And we have a, a quite a, a nice following and those people aren't able to come out. And, and you know, our, our clientele sometimes, is, you know, there a lot of them are getting a little older and are, have limited mobility and you can't get out and drive at night. So um, it may be something that we'll be able to continue with the people that have been patrons of the theater that can't come in person would, you know, would maybe appreciate being able to see things online. And for the people that want to see it live, which we love, because that's what we do, you know, we'll still be doing it on stage where they can enjoy it as well. I just want to ask you both, what productions are you looking forward to once everything starts open up, opening up again? I think we can start with you, Henry. Well, we had a really good season lined up that we were not able to present this year. Um, naturally, the, the shows that we had on our schedule, we had to, to find alternatives for in order to do them online. So we're looking to get back to doing some of the, the big musicals, you know, new musicals, classical musicals, some new plays, comedies, dramas. Um, right now, we have a show opening tonight. It's called Gin Game Online. It's a classic uh, Pulitzer Prize winning play from Broadway, two characters. It's got Peter and Debbie Kirst, who are fabulous and well-known actors in the community. Uh, they play the two characters. Um, we have a, a big murder mystery musical that was written particularly to be filmed and done in the COVID era. Um, so we're gonna be doing that coming up in the next month or so. And then we have one more show in the season uh, that we're gonna prepare that I won't announce yet, uh, but we're, we're keeping active and really looking forward to maybe a series uh, if we can start having small audiences this summer, we're talking about doing just a package of, of um, like three really small shows just to get people back into the theater. It's going to be a lot of trust factor of people wanting to come back and feeling safe to come back. Um, we bought a fogging system, uh, quite expensive system that is going to make it a lot uh, safer for people to come back into the environment. Uh, we've been using it, you know, as we work on stage with the actress in the filming, but it um, we can do our whole 500 seat auditorium in like in less than a half an hour with this equipment. Um, so it's well worth the purchase. And I think, you know, once we start allowing people back in, we'll really push this whole idea um, so that they can feel safe and know that we, that their safety is our utmost concern. 
And I know you're not the governor yourself, but have you talked okay. to the governor about maybe when the theaters will be able to start safely opening back up or are you kind of in the dark with that still? Well, I haven't talked to anyone personally about it. I mean, we're just like everybody else. We get the news. Um, I have a few people that have been kind enough to, you know, give me numbers where I can call for information. Um, but, you know, as soon as the information is there, we'll get it. And, and the community has been very generous of sharing information. Um, you know, when one organization may learn something, you know, we, we'll talk about it among ourselves because we, we want everyone to survive. Um, as as Hosani said, it's a, it's a wonderful family that we have here. Uh, and we feel that our community, um, you know, as laid back as, as Albuquerque is, um, they really do appreciate the arts and the theater and being able to um, get out and see a live performance. So we're, we've got a lot of things that we want to do that we're lined up, not ready to announce them yet, because when I say something like on the air, then it becomes, you know, the, the, the truth and everybody believes it. So I have to be careful in saying what we're doing until I can, you know, be sure that I'm correct. Absolutely. And, and Hassani, are you looking forward to acting in any productions that were off put by the pandemic? Is there something coming up you're looking forward to seeing? What about you? Oh, well, first, the, the question you asked, Henry, I have to say, I need to start where I left off. Because I was coming, our show, Dreamgirls, shut down. And ALT did one weekend, I believe, of Beauty and the Beast. And I didn't get to come see it. So I need to pick up from Beauty and the Beast <laughs> and go on from there. Um, there's, I haven't heard of any plays that I'm interested in at this present moment, but, um, being in the house, I've been writing a one man show and I wrote a black lives matter play featuring four actors. And I directed it last, uh, two weekends ago. So it's online for free, but yeah, just want to pick up on beauty and the beast and then see what's going on out there later. <laughs> Well, awesome. Thank you both for talking with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Bryce. Thank you. All right. Time to head back over to the line panel now with a familiar topic. Uh, really, the last few weeks, we've been running down all of the final outcomes of the 2020 legislative session and the special uh, legislative session that just recently wrapped up. And last Friday, a week ago, was actually the deadline for the governor to sign legislation. And there were some vetoes and other things that happened last minute um, that we came after we taped everything last week. So we want to dive into that, largely around the state budget and federal dollars, how that's being handled. And uh, uh, just, again, putting a, a finishing touch on the legislative session and the outcomes there. And uh, so here now is the line opinion panel talking about the outcomes uh, from the Roundhouse. In the past week, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham put the finishing touches on both the 2021 regular and special sessions. The governor, of course, signed measures legalizing cannabis and expunging criminal convictions for certain cannabis related crimes. She also signed the budget and we'll start with her vetoes the most notable of which was more than a billion dollars worth of spending earmarked for federal funding coming into the state. The governor said she didn't necessarily oppose the way the money was being spent 
And the federal money won't disappear with the line item veto, but she said it's not the legislature's money to spend. And Laura, and she says she has a court decision to back her up on this. I'm so curious your, your opinion on her position on this. Well, I think it surprised a lot of people. Um, I, I'm not sure that anybody, uh, well, at least, you know, folks who participate, participated in the legislature and do so regularly, um, anticipated that, that this was going to be her position. But I, I do think that, you know, she has a point. Um, the legislature kind of took that, that federal funding to mean that they had some say in what would be, what could be spent. And um, she really felt that that was not uh not the case. And I think if you look at other states, um, they really have not uh, um, made it a legislative decision. Uh, there's been sort of a directive from the federal government to governors and the administration of each state um, to do certain things. And so I, I'm, you know, I think that she probably is right in terms of um, her position. But again, uh, surprising somewhat. Is it, a, it, was, is it a principle thing, Laura? Is she, I mean, is she giving up, you know, <sighs> A certain amount of emergency power here, you know, by doing this? Um, no, I don't necessarily think she is. I mean, she's still the head of the state and she still has um, a lot of input and say in terms of what gets done um, from uh, in terms of dealing with uh, COVID relief. And uh, I'm not sure that it that it does sort of erode anything for her. I think that uh, it kind of exacerbates the relationship, though, between the legislature and the governor, which um, you know, in, in some administrations is very tense and others it's, they have a very, um, you know, very good working relationship. And I think it ebbs and flows, and certainly for her, this is an example of that. Good point there. Kathy, you know, the governor also vetoed a bill that would have required police to be trained annually in de-escalation techniques. It would have also changed the composition of an oversight board for police licensing. Now, this passed the legislature unanimously, and we've talked about it here about police reform with you as well having maybe missed its moment. Did the governor's objection to the licensing part of, of this, you know, she had an issue with the how, is that throwing out the baby with the bathwater here? Um, I was confused by it, but I, I do understand that what she's saying is that the civilian oversight is really important. Um, and so I agree with that. Um, I, I think that what's gonna happen is that it will be reintroduced in the next session and it'll get passed. Then if they can come to some agreement on having civilian oversight, and I know that that's a trend around the country is to say that we really have to have some civilians looking at police uh, misconduct uh, so that we can uh, get on the other side and, and, and really have some actual um, new behaviors coming out of police departments that have been so uh, militarized over these past few decades. So I'm surprised that that she didn't allow it to go through and then say, but we still need to have more civilian oversight. Right. And just fix it. Exactly. Hey, Tom, the one thing that might stick around, Zoom access to committee meetings. Uh, Speaker Brian Egoff likes the idea, but when you're in a committee room, of course, you know this better than probably all of us, you can tell which voices get heard, which don't. There's a very human, you know, thing going on there. It's harder on Zoom, almost impossible with email content, I got to think, too. Are we trading accessibility for accountability here? Ooh, great question. You know, um, there is there's a certain level of accessibility because anybody can look in. But if you're actually there wanting to provide feedback on some legislation, um, there's not any real consistency between the committees as far as which you know, what their rules are, you know, and unless you sign up uh, for some committees, uh, the, the evening before a bill is scheduled to be heard, uh, you're not going to be able to have your voice heard. So, you know, whereas in the legislature, you know, back when 
uh, we all would meet in person. You would go in and, you know, anybody in favor of the, uh, the bills, uh, please raise your hand. And then, um, you know, so there was a chance for that. Now, there were some good things mm-hmm. along the lines of using Zoom and doing some, uh, some grassroots polling, uh, some of the features within, within that virtual meeting app. And I think that's good. But as far as, you know, people have, don't have consistent internet access um, they don't all have, um, you know, microphones and standalone cameras uh, to really help to communicate. And as a result, uh, their message gets lost in the lack of technology. Laura, uh, could you pick I, up on that, please? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I, I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've worked the legislative sessions for years now, and this was definitely a, a very, very different environment. And I would agree with what Tom's saying. I mean, yes, on the one hand, you were able to uh, it was a little more convenient in terms of being able to log on as opposed to driving to Santa Fe, you know, dealing with parking, dealing with like just the logistics of it all, um, not to mention the expense of, of staying up there and all of that. But at the same time, there was definitely a lack of um, interaction because it was so uh, it was passive for legislators like they really didn't have to respond to people's requests if they didn't want to. And I, for example, um, have enjoyed for years a good relationship with my representatives, um, with my senators and my, um, and my local rep. And this year um, I'm, I live in a new location. So I have a new, a new senator, a newly elected senator, and I could not get him to return my emails. I couldn't get him to um, respond to me. Um, and I, I heard that from a lot of folks that um, you know, they really, they don't have to respond to messages, to emails, to texts, um, as opposed to when you're there physically, it's hard for them to ignore you if you're in, in their face. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it very frustrating for anybody who is used to um, being able to have, develop a relationship um, with folks. And the other, the other very strange thing about this session is there were a lot of new legislators, a lot of new senators, representatives, this was their first time. And so they, they did not have the benefit of knowing what it's been like in the past right. in terms of responsive yeah. to um, constituents. And so for them, I'm concerned that this is going to be their norm. For them, this was what um, they think is, you know, representing, as opposed to others who have been there for many years, they understand that like, when someone comes to your office, when someone is catching you between committees, talking to you about an issue. And so it's very, um, you know, I, I am concerned about sort of the level of involvement we're gonna be able to have if we continue to do it through Zoom. Let me, let me ask Kathy real quick. I mean, Mr. Ugolf says 6,100 individuals had logged on, logged on to House committee hearings via Zoom. Like 6,100, does he have a point here? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people, and I think that we also have to be concerned and 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 talk about who are the people who have access, uh, who've had access over all these years, and maybe we need to have some new normative behaviors about how we do things. And because the legislature has been so low tech, they didn't uh, take a deep dive into how to do it really well. I think. We're- different way of people interacting. And so I think having the Zoom sessions is a good thing and that it did open it up to people who would have never been in one of those rooms. I think it levels the playing field. I hope it continues and I hope the legislature does a better job and that we also hold our representatives accountable to say, you don't get to just not respond to our emails or comments. That's right, exactly right. Sorry, a little short on time there. That'll have to do it for the line. Sticking with the Roundhouse for a little bit here, we're going to round out the show this week with a conversation about some of the environmental and climate change 
legislation that was brought up during the 60-day session. There were some pretty big bills that passed, uh, and there were also uh, some pretty big ticket items that didn't make it through, and we want to run down that and get some thoughts and opinions from a lawmaker as well as activists. Um, and we're going to start off with the activists here. We have a um, very eloquent young man who's with Yucca, which is an activist group uh, for climate change issues, and it uh, talks a lot about what he was paying attention to during the session and what work still he sees needs to be done in future sessions and just talks um, a lot. You're going to hear about how time is of the essence and we can't afford to just push these things from legislative session to legislative session. They're complicated issues. One of the measures that did pass, so here talked about, We'll set up a, a task force, if you will, to look at transitioning jobs into new renewable energy sources from the fossil fuel jobs that are so valuable and vital to our overall economy. Uh, but that's just the tip of the iceberg there. And uh, we want to dive right into that conversation now, hosted by our land correspondent, Laura Paskus. And we'll be back with a bit more here in a second. Thank you for joining me today. You were tracking environment bills this session. What passed that you're happy about this year? Well, some of our biggest, um, like, you know, the things we're really glad about in terms of environmental legislation that passed, um, the bills that crossed the finish line were like SB 84, Community Solar, which is a bill that would increase accessibility of uh, solar energy, especially for low-income communities. And community solar is something that Yucca organization has been calling for for about the two years that we've existed. So it's really been wonderful to see that passed. Um, also, Senate Bill 112 or SB 112, the Sustainable Economies Act, um, and SB 8A, Local Government Air and Quality Regulations, and then House Bill 51, Environmental Database, were some of our kind of like additional bills. I don't want to say that we claim any kind of leadership with that passage, but we were really glad to see those pass. Yeah. What about bills that did not pass this year that you're disappointed about? And why do you think some of those didn't make it through the session this year? We saw a lot of important legislation go unscheduled or killed in committees. Um, and we basically saw that oil and gas utility lobby had interests prioritized over the needs of New Mexicans. Proposals that would have uh, reined in extraction or shifted our energy system in significant ways were all killed, uh, including SJR3, the Environmental Rights Amendment, or the Green Amendment, SB84, Local Choice Energy, SB86, Use for Oil and Gas Operations, aka Produced Water Regulations. And once I'm done making this list, I'm going to talk to you a little bit specifically about that one. Uh, SB4, SB149, Prohibit New Fracking Licenses, SB HB50, Private Right of Action for Certain Statutes, and HB9, Climate Solutions Act. So these are all bills that would have started to do the work to curb carbon emissions in the state of Mexico and tackle the fact that we have within our borders one of the largest oil fields on the planet, and we have a regulatory obligation to the rest of the planet, right? And those bills were um, all kind of unceremoniously killed or just never read in committee, um, despite being filed often far ahead of other bills that were read, right? You can look at the Green Amendment that arrived at judiciary very early in the session and was never heard while in that committee. Many youth activists, um, including with Yucca, and, um, are, are not eligible to vote, and yet yeah. lawmakers, the public, were, were taking action or not taking action on issues that affect your generation most of all. What do you wish that um, 
that lawmakers and the public better understood about climate change and the urgency of New Mexicans acting on climate change, for example. Yes. So one thing that I'll say in terms of that age gap, I'm 18, I can vote. There's a lot of people who work with me, who know more than me, who are very intelligent people, who are 16 and 17, who know about these issues, can't vote. Um, to remedy that, we actually supported in coalition um, the 16 vote bill, um, later changed to the 17 vote bill because it was amended in committee, um, that would have allowed 16 year olds and 17 year olds the right to vote in state elections, right? That's the most immediate solution to that. If you want to respect our interests, give us a chance to represent them. Um, in the electoral process. The last time we changed the election age, right, nationally was in light of the Vietnam War, when you had people being drafted in the military who couldn't vote for the people who were drafting them into the military. That contradiction need to be, needed to be resolved. At the same time, right now, you have 16 and 17 year olds who will experience the single worst damages of climate change, unable to vote on the people choosing whether or not to shorten their lifespans. That's an incredible contradiction that needed to be resolved. It unfortunately wasn't resolved this session and we'll be back next time to make sure that it is. Mm -hmm. um, aside from that, aside from just the very simple solution of let us vote, um, what people I think need to understand, for young people, the scale of the crisis is very large. And I think there were definitely elders in our communities, other folks in our communities who understand it. But even when I talk to people younger than myself, it's even larger for them, right? I'm scared that I may never be able to live past 50. Right. There's people 10 years younger than me scared that they're never going to be able to live past 40. The fear becomes deeper and deeper as you get younger because your lifespan gets shorter and shorter. And I think part of what we have to understand is that climate change is not something that can be dealt with soon. It is something that has to be dealt with now. Right. We are not looking for we do not need to be <laughs> we talk about goals in the future. Right. We talk about carbon neutrality by 2050, we talk about these ideas. And there were bills even in the session that sought to do that. And those are good, valuable things. But I also think that because we talk about these things in big timelines, it becomes easy to comprehend climate change as something that is going to happen and something that will cost. That's not true. It is happening. It has already cost human lives and action needs to be taken by the time I finish saying this sentence. I know that it's early to be talking about next session, but what do you hope lawmakers start working on right now ahead of next year's session? Yeah, um, I'd really love to see a 16 and 17 vote bill. I think we gained some traction this year. Um, I think also what needs to be dealt with is the ways that in that undemocratically, a lot of bills are killed in committee, right? Um, you can look at what happened in judiciary where you had literally hundreds of bills in committee. The Green Amendment, one of our primary priority bills, arrived to judiciary early in the session. It wasn't heard, right, um, throughout the rest of the session. There was obviously favoritism being played there at the same time that the chair committee member, the chair of that committee, um, received some of the most oil and gas money of any politician in the state. I don't see that as coincidental. Um, it feels just too linear a series of events to be coincidental that the place where so many environmental bills and other, you know, good bills are being stopgapped is also the committee most controlled by private industry. And so that has nothing to do with democracy. That has nothing to do with votes. That has nothing to do with representation. And it's holding back our democratic electoral process in New Mexico. And work needs to be done by lawmakers uh, and people outside of the lawmaking system to change that. On another level, I think what needs to happen, what needed to happen this session and what needs even more to happen next session is strong regulation of the oil and gas industry. We need to make sure that Radioactive waste fluid isn't being considered water in the state of New Mexico. We need to make sure that regulations are put in place that will reduce the amount of carbon emissions, carbon emissions 
out of the Permian Basin um, in the next 10 to 15 years. That needs to happen now if the human species is going to continue. And the state of New Mexico has an obligation, not just to its citizens, um, but to the entire human race to not continue to be such a massive part of global carbon emissions. Thank you so much for joining me and I really appreciate the work that you do. I'm really glad I could join you too. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you for letting me talk a little bit about this work. All right, and we have a little bit more of that conversation we just didn't have time for in the show as well, but like to bring that to you here. And it's a good time for me to turn the table on you all a little bit here and ask you a question as we continue to refine this podcast and how we bring you our show in this different platform, on in this different media. And just wondering if you guys like the uh, all of the content coming to you in one podcast like this, uh, including the extras we don't have time for in the show. Sometimes these podcasts can get well over an hour long doing it that way. Or would you like us to break it down and, and send it to you throughout the week in smaller chunks? So we'd love to hear what you think about that idea. You can leave us a, a voice comment here uh, on the podcast. You can hit us up on any of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Again, just search for New Mexico and Focus. Let us know if you like the full breadth of the show each week coming to you this way or if you'd like smaller chunks that uh, get dispersed out through the course of the week. But for now, here is a little more of our conversation with our youth activists about environmental and climate change legislation. I also mentioned the produced water uh, amendments or... What's that number on it? It's been a little while, so I forgot some of the numbers. Um, SB 86, used for oil and gas operations. And that's a bill that would have dealt with, first of all, the fact that the fracking industry takes up so much freshwater resource, right? Um, we live in a desert, and we've banked ourselves economically on an industry that consumes insane amounts of freshwater um, that cannot be restored. So first of all, it would have hopefully limited the use of freshwater in the fracking process, which has been done successfully by members of the industry. But also what it would have done is provide some better regulation around what's called produced water. Now I'm saying that word and it's very possible that a lot of people don't know what that is. That's very reasonable. It's in fact a misleading term. Misleading is a strong word. It may just be an entirely inappropriate one, but it's the term being used by the government. And so it's worth understanding. Produced water is the word used to describe the toxic fracking fluid produced by the fracking process. Fracking produces more than it produces crude oil, more than it produces anything else. This toxic radioactive waste, this kind of sludge. Um, we don't even know the full chemical isotopes of this compound. We know that it's carcinogenic, radioactive, cancer causing, right? Um, just a lot of synonyms for very bad and not water. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've never encountered a kind of, I've never encountered like a glass of water um, that poses like a significant risk of cancer before, right? Um, and so produced water is this euphemistic term that's used to describe the toxic fluid produced by fracking. And it is heavily underregulated within the state of New Mexico. And there's preparation being made to potentially use that fracking fluid um, as a replacement for fresh water when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to roads, when it comes to waterways. And so this bill would have dealt with that, right? Would have dealt with that regulation, that need for regulation. It's a very straightforward thing. Cancer causing liquids could, should be considered hazardous waste. Um, it's intuitive almost, right? Uh, that bill was killed in committee, primarily because it was seen as not supportive enough of industry interests. 
and oh, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. If you wanted to add a, another bill or. I just wanted to mention the fact that that bill was killed. Among many others, that bill is very important to me because I think it highlights that in a moment where the choice was very directly between the health of New Mexicans and the interests of private fracking companies, private fracking companies, private oil and gas industries won unanimously. All right, so you have a good idea of what made it out of the legislative session this year and what more work still has to be done. And one of the big people, lawmakers, that will be at the forefront of pushing these additional items is Representative Angelica Rubio uh, from Las Cruces. We had the chance to check in with her as well, get some of her thoughts on the 60-day session and her top priorities in this area for upcoming sessions uh, again, this is Laura Paskus, our Arland correspondent, who did this interview for us, and uh, we'll give you a listen to that now. Representative Rubio, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you so much for being with me today to talk about environmental legislation that passed and didn't pass this session. I'm curious to start off, what are the most important environmental bills in your mind that did pass this year? I think that there was a number of bills, but I was actually really excited. Senate Bill 112 was signed by Governor the governor yesterday and um, it creates a, sustain a sustainable economic uh, sustainable economy task force and um, this piece of legislation while just on the surface is just talks about a task force um, it's really there's a lot of really good things inside the bill which codifies a workforce development study that was conducted um, by the University of New Mexico and the Department of Workforce Solutions, as well as creating an advisory council that centers frontline workers. And so for me, I believe that we we get to reaching climates, um, we, 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 we get to address climate um, issues much quicker when we center them on economic, uh, through an economic lens and how it impacts workers. And, and I believe Senate Bill 112 starts to do that. Okay, any others that you were happy about this session? Yeah, I mean, I, I know she signed the, the solar bill yesterday, um, uh, the, the community solar bill. Um, there's, there's quite a number that were signed yesterday related to the environment. And, um, and I know that there's a cohort of us legislators who will be getting together this week to start already working on next session and making sure that um, climate is at the center of, of our budget, of our budget, um, legislative session next year. Are there any other bills um, that didn't make it through the session this year that you are already talking about bringing back next session? I mean, I think so. I mean, for me, uh, I, I wanted this last session to be super transformational. I mean, that was really the purpose of my, my, my goal. And for me, transformational meaning, you know, COVID-19, I think we can all agree unveiled a lot of inequities here in the state inequities that I think myself and many others have been talking about for many years through our organizing work around the state. And um, and so I think we went in with a lot of really good momentum, but unfortunately, the legislative um, institution is still relatively um, conservative when it comes to issues around um, racial and social justice, as well as climate justice. And so um, I think that for those of my colleagues in the House, we are we are determined um, I still have issues with just fundamentally how our legislature 
doesn't get to do as much work during the year as as I think we should. And so um, my hope is, is that with whatever efforts we can make between now and July, when the budget talks start to really pick up, that we can make a lot of this climate and environmental work a priority. Andreas, since you were first elected, social justice issues and environmental issues, you've really been ahead of the curve on both of those. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the intersection of those two issues and why they're so important for New Mexicans? Yeah, so one, thank you for that question because I think that um, we as a state have missed the mark in a lot of, of ways pre in previous years because um, many of these movements as, as important as they are were very siloed. And I think I was just having this conversation earlier with someone around the Outdoor Equity Fund, which passed um, the legislature back in 2019 and um, was a part of the creation of the Division of Outdoor Recreation is that there was so much mobilization around that piece of legislation that um, so much of that momentum carried on. And so you had um, you had environmental groups this past year working just as fiercely as ever on economic and social issues that are were important to many of the organizations that um, were working on other issues like paid sick leave or um, any any anything related to early childhood and uh, early childhood development. And so. Um, I think it's some exciting, it's really exciting for me being a legislator in, in the course of the last four years that so much of my work that I've been doing as an organizer has now really sort of um, infiltrated into the legislature and has really created this, this intersectionality that I think even legislators are really starting to recognize. As you mentioned, next year's session is focused on the budget. How does climate change, uh, oil and gas industry, how do all these issues tie into the budget and, and what legislation might, might we be looking at next year? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the question that I think a lot of us are going to be um, really navigating over the course of the next few months because as many of your your viewers know, um, oil and gas is pr predominantly part of the revenues that come into our state. And so um, there are many of us who've been working on ideas around economic diversification and what that looks like for our state. And um, I know that we just passed the, the legalization of recreational cannabis. We have an outdoor economy that's really starting to, to pick up and um, and I think for many others, I think that's why this House, the Senate Bill 112 was so critical because it allows for us to reimagine a completely different um, revenue sources for the state so that we can think about other, other um, opportunities. And so um, I think that's also gonna be a challenge moving into the session next year that um, it depends on where oil and gas revenues are um, between now and July, and then again in December, and then again in January when we start up again, because um, we have sort of perpetuated this cycle of, of dependence on, on this industry. And while it's been very good to our state, it actually doesn't allow us to plan ahead. And so my hope is, is that as we begin to develop and really diversify our economy, that we sort of push back on this on this narrative that um, that while we might be uh, uh, in terms of, of economics not as uh, not have as many resources as as other states that we we actually 
can build a new vision for New Mexico and, and we have to do that without relying so heavily on one industry and really letting frontline workers and, and communities really create these opportunities for, for that imagination and for those ideas. And so for the budget next year, um, it'll certainly be interesting. Um, and I think we're just gonna have to be very strategic on how we prioritize climate while still navigating that income source. Representative Rubio, thanks for joining me on New Mexico in Focus and thank you for your service to our state. No, thank you. Alrighty, that'll do it for us in the show this week. A quick reminder about that candidate forum for CD1, 1st Congressional District. The New Mexico Black Voters Collaborative is hosting that virtually on Facebook next Tuesday, 6 to 7.30 p.m. Go check that out on their Facebook page, and you can find it on ours as well, including a link to how to get registered to attend that. Not a lot of time left in that um, campaign. Uh, voting, early voting starts before long here, just in a matter of a couple weeks. So I encourage you to be a part of that and uh, always look forward to their efforts to get the electorate informed and up to speed on an important special election here in New Mexico. Also keep an eye on us next week. We'll be talking to Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham about the cannabis legalization that made it through the special session, uh, this brand new industry that will be coming to New Mexico and all that comes with that complicated issue. Our Growing Forward team, Megan Camrick, Andy Lyman from New Mexico Political Report, they will be talking to her about that. We'll bring you some of that. And also make sure you subscribe to the Growing Forward podcast for that full discussion and a lot of other great stuff in the works as well. So we hope you have a terrific weekend. Stay safe, stay out of the wind, and uh, we will join you again next week. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy. Retirement, family, lifestyle, job. Those are the top four reasons to move to New Mexico. Found in the United Van Lines 2020 National Movers Survey, their annual analysis of inbound moves to outbound moves for each state. Now, our results show 30% of those who moved here in 2020 checked off retirement. Just look out the window any random day and you know why, it's beautiful here. Now the numbers reflected with over 50% of those who moved here in 2020 above the age of 65. But you know who didn't move here in 2020? People between 18 and 44, only 12%. In that sweet spot age group every city is fighting for, that 35 to 44 age group shows just 9% moved here compared to 18% leaving New Mexico in 2020. That 35 to 44 age group is that life and career window when a lot of us step out to invest in businesses and companies, uh, people are climbing to their peak earning years by entering the C-suite at work, they churn the housing market, all the rest. We're just not getting our share and that's a long-term problem. Now look, there's nothing wrong with retiring here, but we'd be foolish to see these 2020 numbers as a pandemic-driven fluke. With 35% of us leaving because of employment, it's not an age thing, it's a jobs thing.